0: Your turn in there. I'd like to thank um, our elders, uh, Daniel and Dave and Wayne, who love and serve and care for this church and pray for this church and uh, generally just love you guys so much. They love the gospel. They love Jesus and they love this church and to see this church grow in our faith, grow numerically, grow as a people. And they do so much to uh, support and lead this church And uh, I'm just very thankful that I get to serve alongside those men. So Dave, uh, Wayne, and Daniel, everybody's here today. That's delightful. Thank you, guys. I love all three of you. You're very wonderful, and so are your families. Um, All right, let's pray, and then we can jump in to Acts chapter 10. Please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to gather, to celebrate you, to enjoy you. God, we thank you that we have a place and we have, you have made us a people, a community to gather together. Lord, we pray for our kids this morning that are up in Grace Place, we pray and thank you for the leaders, uh, those people who give of themselves to lead and teach and care for the kids of this church. Lord, we pray for our kids that you would um, speak to them, reveal yourself to them, that they might walk with you for many, many, many years, that they would, you would save them at an early age. God, we thank you for those uh, special opportunities that we have as a church to show the love of God to these kids in the way that we love each other and care for each other and worship together and serve one another. God, let us never take that for granted. Let us never forget that that's part of being a church community. God, I pray for us as a church that you would continue to strengthen us and bind us together, unite us, help us to grow, to walk together through the good and the hard parts of this life that we would um, hold each other up and, and push each other stri- to strive to shine our lights brightly for you. God, for generations, you have called men and women to be your servants, to be part of what you are doing in this world. And Lord, we believe you are still calling us to join that great work that you are de- doing here. You don't need us, but you call us and invite us to be part of of what you are doing in this world to renew and restore and redeem things. Help us today, Lord, to gain a clear vision of your call on our lives, to be reminded that we are called to be the lights of the world. Help us today to develop a deep dependence on the reality of your sovereignty and love as we seek to reflect you to, reflect you to this world. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Landmark days in history. We could talk for hours and hours and hours about the major milestones, the major events, even just in American history, let alone worldwide history. You have things like in 1440 when the printing press was invented. It changed things. In July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence approved by the Continental Congress. It changed things. September 2nd, 1945, Japan surrenders to the U.S. and ends World War II. It changed things. And of course, July 21st, 1969, the first person walks on the moon. It changed things for us. And if we're going to talk about major landmark events that changed the world, August 9th, 1988, The first night game at Wrigley Field happened. It changed things for us. Things are forever changed by landmark moments. And I know multiple times as we've been studying the book of Acts, we've gone through these first nine chapters, I've talked about the impact and influence certain events have had, the ripple effect we've talked about as things have spread, as the gospel has gone from this little group hiding out to growing in Jerusalem, to spreading out into the surrounding areas. And over and over, I've talked about this ripple effect and how these things have lasting impact. And I'm going to ask you one more time to allow me this morning to make the point that as we cover chapter 10 here this morning, it revolves around some groundbreaking, life-altering decisions and events that will forever change what it means to be a child of God. That's what we're studying this morning. Let's jump in. We're going to jump into chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 1, and then uh, we'll go from there. So Acts 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at, at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. Let's stop there for now. Chapter 10 really kind of plays out like a movie. We have these multiple scenes, multiple characters, things happening simultaneously. In scene one, we are introduced to Cornelius. It says he is a man, a centurion, of what was known of the Italian cohort. A centurion was in command of about 100 men in the Roman army. Think today, army captain, okay? Not necessarily the high-ranking officials, but the ones who were directly above the soldiers. Polybius, a historian at the time, wrote this about this role of centurion, and I think it plays into giving us some insight into who Cornelius was. He said, centurions are required not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders, of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their post. Consistent, dependable leader of many men. That's what this role required. That's the kind of person Cornelius was. And we get some insight there in verses 1 and 2 that he is a devout man who has feared God, gave alms, and prayed continuously. There was an unofficial group referred to by the Jews as God-fearers. These were Gentiles who were more than just sympathetic to the faith, but were followers up to the point of full conversion, of becoming Uh, becoming Jewish. For most, the requirement of circumcision was kind of a deal breaker, but they kind of walked up right to that line. And while these God-fearers were appreciated and even respected by many of the Jewish people, at the end of the day, though, they were still Gentiles. And so there would always be a level of separation and disregard for them. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And for Cornelius, well, he's a centurion for the Roman army. He worked for the people who kept the Jewish people under the oppression, who abused and took advantage and ruled over them and ruled over their home, the home that God had promised them, the home that God had given them. The Romans were in charge, and so Cornelius works for the bad guys. So again, even as a God-fearer, Cornelius would still be an outsider at best by the Jewish people based on what he did for a living. But Cornelius lived different. He lived counter to what Roman way of thinking there was because there was no shortage of multiple idolatrous idolatrous distractions in the form of mythological gods in the Roman culture. But he instead chose the monotheistic Judaism and the God of Israel to follow. Now, based on the description of his life, the little bit that we get to see of him, he, he does really walk in every way as a follower of the God of Israel, short of circumcision. He was humble. He gave and supported others, and he prayed regularly. And it's this component, his regular commitment to prayer, that shows up as vital in this passage. It says in verse 3, he was praying at 3 p.m., known as kind of the Jew, one of the hours of the day where all of the Jewish community would kind of shut everything down and go to the temple to pray or go be together to pray. And so while he wasn't in Jerusalem, he was still praying at that hour. And while he is praying, Cornelius gets a vision. An angel shows up and calls his name out. And we see in verse 4 Cornelius' reaction. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? His response is another example of his seemingly genuine faith because it's terror and openness. He wasn't arrogant enough to think that he was somehow special or better than this angel, but really he realized he was standing in front of an angelic being, and it freaked him out, rightly so. And his response is, what do you need, God? What is it? Cornelius' faith and life were received by God, the angel says. It it ascended to him as if it was a burnt offering, and the smell and the, the smoke would ascend to God was the imagery that you talk about in Psalms with burnt offerings. And the angel says, your way of life, your fear of God, your almsgiving, your care, things have ascended to God. God has seen it. God has received it. And God, there will be a response from God if you will obey to this instruction. I need you to send for Peter. Get Peter to come to your house. Now remember from chapter 9, Peter is in Joppa. Peter had been traveling around preaching and teaching, ends up in Joppa and ends up healing and bringing a woman back from the dead. And it said he stayed there for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And we talked about how the tanners were those who worked with dead animals, so they were outcasts to the Jewish society. And that's where Peter decided to hang out for a while. And so this angel tells Cornelius, send for Peter, he's in Joppa, he's at a tanner's house, send some people. And immediately, In verses 7 and 8, Cornelius responds to what the angel said to him. He sends three of his best to go to Joppa to request the presence of Peter. And it seems he tells, it says there in verse 8, he tells them everything that the angel said to him. So Cornelius relays this whole vision to these men and they're like, yeah, sure, all right, we're going to go. So clearly, as it says in verse 2, when it says that Cornelius and his whole house were devoted This was the way that Cornelius led and the people that Cornelius surrounded himself with that he could relay this vision of I had a vision, an angel told me you need to go to Joppa and get Peter. And everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. That's a logical thing to happen. We're going to go. And they just go to Joppa. And so they are on their way to go and request the presence of Peter to come back with them to Caesarea. So that's kind of scene one. Now we get into verse nine and we have scene two. It's the next day because the travel is about two days. And the next day, Peter is up on the roof about noontime. It's not weird to go on the roof back then. They were flat kind of roofs, and you used your roof as kind of a patio at that time. So he goes up to do some praying, and while he's up there, he also gets a vision. Notice the emphasis on prayer in both of these accounts. See, in prayer, yes, we talk to God. It's the way we communicate with God, but also God can speak to us. Maybe it's a dream, Maybe it's a vision, or a word, or a thought, or a concept that God puts into your mind. Consider your own prayer life, whatever your consistent, regular prayer life looks like. How much of it is you telling God the things that you want and need? There's nothing wrong with that. It's good, we're told to do that, to to bring our requests, to bring our supplications, to bring these things to God. But is there any room in your prayer life for quiet? For silence? Is there any room in your prayer life for God to talk? Do you let him get a word in? Or is it all about you all the time? This is a place where I think journaling can help. It's a place where slowing down, being intentional, yes, there are times where when you have a free moment, your mind wanders and you want to just pray as as you're walking, as you're going about things. Amen. But having time where you can sit and be quiet for a little bit and just listen and let the Holy Spirit speak, that's important because God is always speaking. The question is, are we listening? It's a discipline that you need to grow in, and it's a discipline I encourage you to work on. So while Peter is praying, he gets distracted. He gets hungry. Anyone ever get distracted while praying? Yes. Happened to Peter. It's going to happen to us. It's okay keep going. He doesn't just leave. It says he gets hungry, he asks for those in the house to make him food. He doesn't just go wandering into the fridge and just forget about prayer time. He keeps praying. Keep going. Even when you have distractions, even when you have things pop in your brain, push the distractions aside, keep praying. And while the food is being prepared, he has this vision. Something like a sheet filled with all kinds of animals comes down from the sky. Some of these animals were kosher that they were uh, able for him to eat, and then some of them were against the dietary restrictions of Jewish people to consume, namely those reptiles uh, and some of those other four-legged animals that are in there. And then Peter hears a voice. In verse 13, God tells Peter, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Peter, you're so hungry. I got your back. Here you go. Have at it. Peter's response No, God, he argues with this voice. He doesn't even have a person in front of him. He's still arguing with someone. And this is not the first time Peter has decided to argue with God on a direct instruction. In Mark 8, Jesus is teaching. It says, as he began to teach, as Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said that plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning to see his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We also have the incident from the Last Supper, right, where Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter argues with Jesus and says, No way. Maybe the rest of these guys are going to run away. I'm with you to the end. Peter says, and I quote, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And we know how that goes. See, Peter's still Peter. We might be years removed from all of those accounts, but Peter's still Peter. Still imperfect, still doing and saying things impulsively. And so he argues and says, I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never gone against the Jewish dietary restrictions. I'm not about to start now. And God responds with a statement in verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call common. Common is also unclean or defiled. See, in Jewish law, there are things that are holy and there are things that are common or unclean or defiled. Something holy becomes common, defiled, and unholy when it comes into contact with the common thing. So we have holy things when they come into contact with the common things The holy thing becomes common, becomes unclean. And the only way for it to go back to being holy is through rituals and sacrifice. The same with people. If you engage with something common, something unholy, defiled, then you have to go through rituals and sacrifices and go to the temple and get yourself clean so that you can once again participate in the community. The Jewish laws regarding food were very well known. They were established for years and years, generations and generations. And even this is an issue that Jesus and the Pharisees got into in Mark 7, if you're looking for something to study this week. Mark 7, Jesus has a very similar kind of conversation back and forth with the Pharisees regarding food. But what God is doing here is not really about food. I think it's about food because Peter was hungry, and so God, being the master teacher that he is, used the situation. But This isn't about food. It was much bigger than that. It was much bigger than what goes into a person's stomach because God is not worried about, while he cares about what goes into our stomach, God also cares about our heart, and that's what what God is getting at. Three times this vision happens, where the sheet comes down, God tells him, rise, kill, and eat, the sheet goes up. Why does it happen three times? Repetition is important. Repetition in close proximity is really important, and this message that God is trying to communicate to Peter is really, really important. Because again, it wasn't just about whether or not Peter was going to have bacon for breakfast. This was about something much bigger than that. And so after this vision happens, it says Peter is still trying to process. He's perplexed by what he just saw. He's trying to process and understand what God just showed him. And while he's perplexed on the roof, Cornelius' three messengers are downstairs at the door looking for him. And so as we closed out that section, verse 20 says, God tells Peter, go with them without hesitation. Now, God doesn't tell Peter who they are in name, in title, or in ethnicity. And so it must have been quite a shock as Peter comes down the stairs and he goes to the door and he sees three Gentiles that God has told him to accompany without any hesitation. Why would God tell Peter, go without any hesitation? Because there was going to be some hesitation in Peter based on who he was, a Jew, and who they were, Gentiles. And so Peter asked the men, "What are you doing here? Why are you here?" The men repeat to him what they have learned from Cornelius. Cornelius had a vision. He sent us. You've got to come back with us to, to go talk to Cornelius. And it's clear from verse 22, that Peter to Peter that Cornelius is a Gentile as well. And so even Peter's decision to go is a testament to his obedience to God. He might not understand what's happening, but it's a testament to his obedience to God. And then in verse 23, we see he invites these guys into their house. The act of hospitality for a Jewish man toward Gentiles was very, very uncommon. And Peter might have gotten away with it because technically it's Simon the Tanner's house, so it's not really his house. But anyway, these guys spend the night and they leave next morning. And so Peter shows up at Cornelius's house and we see in verse 24, it's a very interesting way to walk into her house. Verse 24, it says, On the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. Peter walks into this guy's house. He's got his friends and family there. Cornelius is on his knees worshipping Peter. And Peter says, I'm just a guy. Get up. Peter always knew where the adulation and adoration should be directed, and it was never about himself. For whatever other things, for the, the faults of Peter, for the things that we see in the Gospels, of some of his negatives, some of the things that are a little rough around the edges, this idea of being the guy, being loved on and worshipped and, and adored was never something Peter really struggled with. And so Peter goes into this house, and he finds a crowd gathered. Still no real understanding of what he's doing here other than God told him to go. All he knows is God said, go, and Cornelius is interested to hear what you have to say. About what, Peter still doesn't really know. But what Peter does know is something that he addresses in verse 28. And that is the very serious Jew-Gentile separation that existed. Verse 28, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In some ways, it is kind of difficult for us to really consider the gulf of separation that existed between Jews and Gentiles. See, the Jews knew very well they were God's chosen people. And for a long time, that was seen as a gift, a gift of grace from God. The fact that God would choose them unearned, they didn't do anything, God picked them, They realized that's grace. They got something they didn't deserve, they didn't earn, but they welcomed it. But over time, it became an area of pride to an unhealthy degree. Instead of humbling them, as it should have, their election by God was turned in most of their minds into a thinly disguised spirit of favoritism and superiority over everybody else. Even though prophet after prophet spoke of the day when the concept of God's people would extend beyond the people of Israel, still they held on to this, we're a little bit better than everyone. In Genesis 12, God makes the promise to Abraham. He says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, what's that next word? In you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah 56, the prophet says, Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house. And within my walls a place and a name, better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Hosea 2.23, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Zechariah 14.16, then everyone who survives all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the the Feast of Booths. See, the people knew that the promise, what the prophets had promised, that a day was coming where the knowledge of God would cover the earth, when all of the earth would worship God, when this spirit would be around all mankind. But what the Jews came to think and came to interpret that as is that in their minds and hearts, everyone else in the world was going to become Jewish. They would all become like them. Because in their minds over time, to be pleasing to God, one had to be a Jew. To enter eternal life and have this relationship with God, you had to be Jewish. It was a toxic misunderstanding of God's word that would show itself in a form of racism and spiritual self-righteousness. There were multiple vile words and phrases that the Jews would use to speak about the Gentiles. Their favorite was to call them dogs. And when they said dogs, it wasn't dogs like the dogs that you guys have at home right now chewing on your sofa, like cute and furry and nice. We're talking like wild stray dogs, full of diseases, wild beasts for all intents and purposes, disgusting and gross. That was how the Jews referred to the Gentiles, and that was the most common, the kind of nicest one. They thought of them as unclean, unworthy, and interacting with them was just unnecessary. But see, this was not the case initially. Peter even says here, it's unlawful. It wasn't in the law. This hatred and disrespect and discrimination developed over time. It was birthed out of this idea of what they call hedging the law. Because the law says you can't eat things that are unclean. You can't be around things that are unclean. And so what happened over time is the rabbi said, okay, God said we can't eat things that are unclean. We can't eat pork. And so instead of just avoiding eating pork, we're going to avoid even interacting with the people who eat pork. We can't touch things who are unclean, so we're just not even going to go anywhere near those people who are unclean. You combine that with this misguided notion that to be in a relationship with God, you had to be Jewish, and the ego and arrogance and vile hatred got mixed into the culture and the fabric of the people, where their racism wasn't even seen as racism. It was just, this is just the way God, God wants it, and it wasn't. There was this we are better than them mentality of treatment towards the Gentiles built into the very foundation of Judaism over time, which obviously in turn colored the ways that the Gentiles saw the Jews as arrogant, self-righteous, angry, mean people. It was not then, and it is not now what God wanted. It was not then And it is not now a reflection of who God is. It was not then and it is not now how the people of God God are called to act, think, or live. When laws and policies and beliefs and actions and decisions and words are used to put down, belittle, attack, disregard, disrespect, destroy, subjugate, violate, harm, abuse, segregate, or in any way try to minimize or take a person's worth or value or identity from them, it is not from Scripture and it is not from God. In fact, those things are a direct attack against God himself because it is an attack on what the scholars call the Imago Dei, the image of God that is put into every person regardless of their faith. Every person is born with that. The fact that you are a person, the fact that anyone exists, means they have worth and value in the eyes of God. You matter to God, you have value to God. He made you, he knows you, and he loves you. And anyone who would try to do anything to attack that image of God is in reality acting not on behalf of God, but on Satan's behalf. Too much. Too much of our country's past and sadly our present is tied to abuses of power based on gender and color and wrongfully invoke the name of God who loves all of his creation, who died for all of his creation, and who welcomes all of his creation to come and be welcomed into the family of God through faith in Jesus. Our city, this place that we call home, that we love so deeply, was built and designed with segregation in mind. For as much as we love to talk about the unique neighborhoods that build, that make up Chicago, and it is, it's amazing. You can go from neighborhood to neighborhood, and each one of them has a different theme, different idea, different, different flavor to it. Still, very clearly, throughout our city, there is ethnic and racial separation that exists within Chicago. And it is a direct reminder that there is still much work for the church, not for everybody else, but for the church to take up and be agents of unity by being those who spread the gospel in our words and in our actions. It was a deep, deep-seated ingrained way of thinking that stretched back generation upon generation that Peter was battling in his mind and heart as he walks into the centurion's room. This passage, chapter 10, is often referred to as the conversion of Cornelius, and rightly so. It's a big deal that Cornelius, spoiler alert, gets saved and becomes a Christian. But just as big and important is really, in a sense, the conversion of Peter that has happened here. Because he has been able to let go and understand what God was trying to show him on that rooftop. That he could see clearly that the gospel was not just for the Israelites, but God had something much, much bigger in mind. And that's what we see in that second half of verse 28. God has shown me that I I should not call any person common or unclean. For all the times that Peter misunderstood or forgot or just flat out missed what Jesus was trying to teach him during those ministry years. For all the times in the Gospels we see Peter say or do something impulsive and less than helpful, this one he gets right in a very short amount of time. I mean, he does argue with the vision, right? And, like, God has to show it to him three different times. And then he's immediately given, like, okay, let's put this into practice before you forget Peter. So, like, God still has to just handle Peter, you know, with kid gloves a little bit. But he gets there. Peter realized that God showed him on that rooftop that it wasn't just about food, it wasn't just about clean versus holy customs, but that God was doing a work that was something much bigger. It was about the very nature and concept of what it means to be welcomed into the family of God. It was answering the question, who is welcome into the family of God? Who is welcome at God's table? And Peter finally realizes everyone, everyone is welcome at the table. Everyone is welcome in God's family. The offer of grace and forgiveness and hope and family and relationship with him, regardless of age, race, ethnicity, financial standing, is bound in Christ. It would, if you would admit that you are a sinner, that you have sinned against God and are in need of a Savior, if you would believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for your sins in your place and that you would choose for him to be your Lord and Savior, you are no longer a rebel and enemy against God, but one of his children. The good news is of great joy for what people? All people that the Savior of the world has come into this world that he created to die for us while we were actively rebelling against him so that we might experience grace and forgiveness and new lives full of joy. Peter might not fully understand all of the implications just in this moment. And we even know from Paul's letters to the Galatians that Peter backslides on this very issue later on. But for now, he is responding to what he knows. He's making decisions in real time, trusting God's leading. And so he goes to Cornelius' house without delay. And he enters not only into a Gentile's house, but a Roman guard's house. And he sits in front of this man's family. And Peter finally, after kind of taking everything in, he says in verse 29, All right, what am I doing here? What did you guys need from me? Peter is faithful. Even when the path is foggy, he doesn't know all the details, but because He knows because he would have argued with God along the way. If he knew all the details, if God said, Peter, here's the plan, he would have argued the whole way. And so Peter stays in the dark. But he knows enough, and he knows God enough. He knows the character and will of God, and so he trusts God. And so even though it didn't make sense and it was murky at times, Peter kept taking steps in obedience in this moment. And so Cornelius retells Peter all that has happened and why he's there. And he says, we're here to hear from you. We want to hear about Jesus, what God has taught you. And we see in verse 33, in the second half of verse 33, it says, Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That's the mentality and spirit we should all be coming in on a Sunday. Open to hearing from God. Attentive and ready to hear from him. Every time we open his word, attentive and ready to hear from him. And so we see in verse 34, Peter takes this all in. In verse 34, it says, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. So Peter opens his mouth. What does that mean? Why why does Luke give us that? Yes, he's talking. Of course he opened his mouth. It kind of gives a little bit of a divine element to it, right? It kind of begs us to ask, like, did Peter know what he was about to say? Because we read the Gospels, and there's a lot of times Peter's talking, and he doesn't know what he's about to say. Or was this like he opened his mouth and God just kind of like made him a ventriloquist dummy and just spoke through him in this moment? I don't think it's quite that. This phrase opened his mouth and began to talk. It's used a few times in the New Testament. And when it's used literally like it is here, it adds some severity and gravitas to the situation. Basically, something important is about to happen. Something important is about to be said. And so Peter takes this deep breath and he opens his mouth and he begins to speak. The group wants to know all that Peter has been commanded by the Lord. So Peter starts with his most recent lesson. One, he's still in the process of learning and understanding in that moment in verse 34 and 35, that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God shows no partiality. Your race, your ethnicity, your education, your family tree, your legacy, your bank account... When it comes to your standing with and before God, these things are of no importance to God because God does not play favorites. Now, Peter is not saying in these verses that good people don't need to, they just need to fear God and they don't need anything else. You still need to put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins to be brought into the family of God. What Peter is saying is that truly all people are worthy to hear the gospel and welcome to receive the gospel. And so to those who would rightly understand the sovereignty and majesty of God and act in righteousness, those who are searching, he's going to show up. As Jesus said, if you come looking, I'm going to show up. If you come knocking on the door, the door will be open to you. There is nothing that is keeping anyone from hearing and accepting and believing the gospel. And today that same truth is reality. There is nothing keeping any of you this morning from hearing and accepting and believing the gospel and becoming a Christian and then being welcomed into the family of God. And whatever your yeah, but is, the sacrifice of Jesus is bigger and more powerful than whatever is in your past and whatever is in your present. You are invited and welcomed and wanted by God to enter into a relationship with him. What Peter has said and done by showing up and saying these things is life and community altering. This goes against what everything that has been the standard of Judaism and made it possible for people like you and me to hear the gospel and receive it and be counted as God's children. And so Peter goes on to basically summarize the ministry and work of Jesus on earth that he was sent to Israel, he preached the good news of peace through himself. And Peter even makes mention in verse 37 that they know that these people who are listening know what has happened. He says, "You guys know about what Jesus did." You weren't living under a rock. How much they know, we don't exactly know. But they were familiar with Jesus. And so Peter gives them a little bit of a refresher. He was baptized by John. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He did good. He healed and exercised demons. He gave those glimpses of the kingdom of God we've talked about. In verse 39, Peter reminds them, Look, in everything that you've heard, and everything I'm telling you, I was an eyewitness. I was there. Me and the other apostles. This isn't hearsay or second hand. Peter experienced it himself. And there are some things in Jesus' ministry Peter got to experience that many others didn't. He was a witness to the end when they hung Jesus on the cross and they murdered him. But what man meant for evil, God has used for good because he raised him from the dead. And after that, Jesus appeared, he showed up, and he ate, and he drank with many Jesus' resurrection wasn't a mass hallucination. It wasn't a vision or a dream. He wasn't a ghost or a spirit. He sat and ate fish and drank wine with his followers. He was really fully bodily raised from from the dead, never to die again. He rose, glorified, and commissioned his followers to preach the good news, to testify to what they knew and what they saw and who Jesus was, to testify that he's the one who defeated sin and death and hell and Satan. He's the one appointed by God to be judge over all. He's the one that God promised Adam and Eve all that way back in the garden. He's the one who was going to go to war with Satan and stomp out the head of the serpent. He's the one who the prophets spoke about and wrote about even though they didn't know who he was. He's the one that they pointed to, this vague figure in the future who would come and be righteousness and good and unite and suffer and unify people. He was the one that the Jews were hoping for and so many missed. Because he was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And that everyone, Gentiles included, who believe in him, receive forgiveness of sins through the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. We've seen it multiple times in this book. When Peter has a chance to preach or teach, when he has a chance to tell people about Jesus, he does what he does. He tells them what he knows. He isn't fancy. He doesn't try and overwhelm them and show them he's the smartest guy in the room. He doesn't use overcomplicated insider terms. He tells them what he knows and what he experienced. He preaches Jesus and him crucified and resurrected. He tells them of the hope being offered. He's already said it. He's just a guy. But he's a guy who was faithful to the situation and faithful to what Jesus told him to do. Even when he couldn't see or understand it and it flew in the face of what he knew, what, he was, what was built into him, the sin that he had to repent of in real time, he stepped into the moment and God used him. And even in verse 44, I love this. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Peter's not even done. He's not even wrapped up. And while he's still sharing the good news and talking about Jesus and talking about how much life change is happening, evidently, hearts are changed, faith was had, the Holy Spirit falls on these people. They hear the gospel and they believe they didn't even get, He didn't even get to his big crescendo ending. The guys who had traveled with Peter are amazed at what they're seeing because these Gentiles, these foreigners with no law and no morals and no exclusive relationship with God, they're now speaking in tongues and glorifying God and it looks like it did on Pentecost. Much of the same things that happened in chapter 2 of Acts in Pentecost here, one commentator calls this the Pentecost of the Gentile world. They're having a tangible manifestation of the Holy Spirit, a sign and symbol to Peter and those who were with him from Joppa that this was real and this was God. And in that moment, in that house, everything changed. And so much like Philip and the eunuch, we saw Peter says, okay, well, these guys got faith in the Jesus. They clearly have the Holy Spirit, so let's go find some water and baptize them. And that's what they do. And Peter stays with them for some time, probably answering questions and and celebrating what has happened here. Landmark days, landmark events, the things that change history moving forward, this was one of those days. While it had been spoken of by the prophets and taught by Jesus, here finally we see the impact and reality that the gospel is for all people. That anyone who believes, anyone who seeks Jesus will find him and find grace. Today, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you are still seeking and searching and questioning, I'm glad you're here. And I know that you're here for a reason. And I think that reason and I believe that reason is that today needs to be that day for you. That day when you put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and find new life of grace and hope and peace and rest found as a child of God. Just as we said when we talked about Paul's conversion a couple chapters ago, no one is beyond the saving work of God and his power. Similar, similarly, here we are reminded that God shows no partiality. And so, for us as his church, this can't be a place of partiality or preference or hate or discrimination for us as individuals or a community. Because we as Christians are not the gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. We are the lights that illuminate the road to God for those who walk in darkness. Every Christian who is not of Jewish descent can trace our faith back to Peter sitting in this house with Cornelius and his family. Because that happened, this right here is happening. We can't be the people who keep others from experiencing the gospel, but rather we need to be overly generous and not hold back from anyone the good news that we have to share. Do not give up on people. Do not assume that somebody is too far gone, is too past being saved. Instead, do not give up on people, but more than that, get up and go, because you have people in your life. You know people who need to hear the gospel. And if you don't have those people or know those people, man, it's time to get some new friends. The world is a dark and messy place, and so many people are longing for community. Longing for relationships. Longing for connection. Because whether they know it or not, they were made with that longing. They were made for those things. They were made for community. And the ultimate fulfillment of that longing is found in a relationship with God himself. So Christians, invite those people into your life, into community. Engage with them. Interact with them. Be intentional to take steps to pursue those people who are different than you, who are in need of what Christ has to offer. Show up and be present to all that God is doing, because God will work. Cornelius showed up and pursued God, even though he didn't quite know who God was. He didn't find satisfaction in the Roman deities. He didn't find satisfaction in Jerusalem and the temple system, but he kept pursuing. He kept asking. He kept searching, and God revealed himself. Cornelius showed up, and God did a work in him. Peter, at no point in this chapter, really has a firm foundation of what's happening around him. He's learning on the fly. The details are scarce, and what he does find out, he is forced to confront and repent of his own discriminatory beliefs. But he didn't refuse or reject or ignore what God had for him. God gave direction, and Peter followed it. So keep trusting, keep following, keep pursuing, because God knows more than you do. And he's got a plan for you. Keep pursuing God because the more and more you know of him, the easier and easier it is to trust him and when you don't see that next step ahead of you. But you'll know that he's got a next step ahead of you. I come back to this verse often for us, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The opportunities are already set up by God. The chances to do good work, to glorify him, to be part of seeing other lives be changed. The chance to point others to Christ so that they can get a taste of what you already know is the bread of life. Those things are already set up ahead of time by God. God is at work right now orchestrating and arranging meetups and interactions. We don't always get the details up front. We don't always get the full picture. But if you are willing to show up, if you are willing to trust God's leading, he will do a work in you and through you. And you will have the joy and privilege to be part of seeing firsthand God redeem and restore and renew this world. Show up and be present and God will work through you. Do not give up on people, but instead go and pursue them because the gospel is for all people. And if you are willing to be used by God to be a light in the world, you might have the chance to be part of somebody else's landmark day. Thanks be to God that he doesn't play favorites. That he invited us into his family. And there is still much, much more room at the table. So who in your life do you know that you can invite to meet Jesus? Let's pray. are the God of all you made all you sustain it you keep it moving you created all of us and your gospel your truth your grace your forgiveness your hope it is for all people you're a generous God give give us generous hearts specifically when it comes to sharing the gospel We share restaurant recommendations and TV shows to watch. Things that we enjoy, we want other people to enjoy. Things that we love, we want other people to love. Give us that same passion and zeal when it comes to the gospel. God, help us as a church, as individuals, and as a community to be agents of unity, agents of grace and hope and forgiveness and love in a world, in a city that is broken and hard and dark and painful at times. Because we have a message of good news, not a message of conflict. We have a message of good news, of great joy. That you gave us hope, that you give us a way to have a right relationship with you, that you give us a way to have a full and complete life now, that you give us a way, you are the way. Help us to be a welcoming, inviting community. To not just wait to just be welcoming, but to actively find people to invite to know you. To invite to hear the gospel. And whether or not we invite people to CF, God, we'd love to see this church grow, but more importantly, we want to see your church grow. We want to see your church grow. We want to see more people come to know you. God, I pray that you would give us opportunities this week. God, I pray that you would put us into situations, that you would give us this week one of those good works you have set up ahead of time. Give us a conversation. Give us a moment. Give us an interaction. Give us some time where we can point people to you. Help us to seek those opportunities out. Help us to be lights in the darkness. We can't do it on our own. God, we thank you that you don't play favorites. We thank you that you have invited all of us to be part of your family. God, I pray if there's anyone who hears this who doesn't know you, who hasn't put their faith in Christ, that today is that day, that in this moment right now that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. God, as we go into the world, you have called us to be the lights of the world to help us to be those lights and shine brightly. We thank you and praise you. Amen.